This is episode 566 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we think about salvation, it seems we always think about the forgiveness of sins, which leads to eternal life in heaven when we die. And all that is true. But there's so much more to salvation than what we experience in this sweet by and by. Jesus' atonement not only saved us from the penalty of sin, which we call justification, but it also saved us from the power of sin, which we struggle with every day, which is called sanctification. And that is the part of salvation that many of us fail to understand. But no more. Once you grasp what full salvation means, you will have the strength and courage to stand against the evil one every day. Why? Because there's so much more to our salvation than just going to heaven when we die. So join us today as we learn more about what full salvation entails as we grow closer to him and learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Sometimes we have a tendency of dwelling on the negative, dwelling on the terrible things in the world right now because life is getting darker. Uh, It's supposed to get darker so that when the light finally comes and Christ comes, everything changes. And so I thought today, really felt uh, compelled to do this earlier in the week, and what happened yesterday just cemented it, that instead of uh, talking about the bad news out there, because there's plenty of it, and there's going to be more tomorrow and more the next day, and if it's true that the signs of his return are like birth pains, it's going to continually get worse, that what we'll do is pause for a second and look at some of the good news, something that we can be encouraged by, something that even in the darkness we can hold on to that uh, will help us persevere during these times. And what we're going to talk about today is what Peter calls our living hope and what exactly that means. Um, Two key words we're going to look at is uh, abundant mercy and, of course, this living hope. And as I'm getting ready to look at these passages, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. The first couple verses are kind of an introduction, but they're full of profound truth. And the ones we're going to focus on is chapter 3 through 5. I started uh, coming up with some questions, such as this living hope or our salvation or the fact that God loves us, he's redeemed us, chosen us by his foreknowledge and all that theological stuff that sometimes we have a tendency of uh, getting lost in the everyday chaos that we see coming from Washington or Israel or everywhere else in the world, like Ukraine or China or, or wherever it is, that um, some of the questions I had is, you know, Lord, I want to understand what you did for us. I mean, I want to be able to fully understand the depth of my salvation, not just what, you know, we commonly pitch, especially in Baptist-leaning kind of uh, churches where salvation, uh, you're forgiven for your sins, and you get to go to heaven when you die, and there's going to be streets of gold, and there's going to be this mansion or this dwelling place that's up there, and it's going to be so great that Jesus right now is working on your dwelling place. And so all the good stuff that's going to happen, all the blessings are going to take place, is going to be in the sweet by and by when you die. And then we're just left here alone, left here struggling against these powers of darkness that seem far greater than we are. I don't know what to do. I can't get control over my own spirit. I can't control even my thought life. 
You know, the things that I want to do, I don't do, as Paul said. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And I consider myself this wretched man caught between these two irresistible forces, the flesh and the enemy. What do I do? All the blessings come when I die, because that's what salvation is all about. But then when you study Scripture a little bit more, you realize that the depth of salvation is far greater than what happens when we die. Because when Christ forgave us and pardoned our sins, he also gave us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit to live in us. And the Holy Spirit, again, is not this force like something from Star Wars, this inanimate inanimate power that just comes from God. You know, the force be with you, the Spirit be with you, the Holy Spirit be with you. Instead, he's a fully God, a fully a person. When you see Christ, that's what the Father's like. When you see Christ, that's what the Holy Spirit is like. And we shared these mind-boggling passages a couple years ago when Jesus is describing the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. He says that I will send you another helper. Do you remember that? Another helper. In other words, I'll send you someone just like me. And so you see the Godhead, which is three distinct persons, three distinct individuals, all fully God, all one. And if you want to know what one is like, he's like the other two. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So how can you say, Philip, show us the Father? If you want to know what God the Father's like, Mount Sinai, the Sistine Chapel, fire and smoke, he's like me. And I'm going to send you another helper just like me. So if you want to know what this wind is like, this this hard-to-define, wispy kind of power that has no body is like, he's just like me. And the one that I'm sending you is the one that will do all the work in you. He's the one that guarantees your salvation, secures your salvation. He's the one that produces gifts in you. They're not Jesus' gifts or the Father's gifts. They're gifts of the Spirit. And so if you want to know who he is like, he's just like me. So, Lord, if we're going to look at this passage, I I need to know what the implications are. I mean, what does that mean? Not for the sweet by and by when I die. I got that. We've heard about that forever. But how about right now? How about right now against all the darkness? How about right now against all the chaos going on? How about right now when things go from bad to worse to, oh my gosh, I don't want to get out of bed? What happens then? Is the same God who redeems me of my sin, is that the same God that can help me live an abundant life, not out there, but an abundant life right now, right here where I'm at? And if so, I want to know about that kind of God. So there's a little background. This is Peter, and he's writing his letter. Peter, of course, is the apostles to the Jews He's writing to the Jews, and so therefore you'll find there's a lot of Jewish imagery in here, like the sprinkling of blood, which has to do with the covenant that's taking place. For us Gentiles, I don't even know what that means, but uh, uh, can't really relate to that, but to a Jew, they could. And so Peter begins this, his letter to them, first two verses here, in a really profound way. He tells about who he's writing to, and then he jumps right into the deep end of the pool. Here's what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm specifically writing to the pilgrims of the Jews of the Dysphoria. The pilgrims are the sojourners, are people who don't really 
call this earth their home to the Jews who've been scattered throughout all the nations. And I'm writing to those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And we go, I don't, uh, what? I don't even know what that means. So we turn to a map. So here, down here is Jerusalem. Peter's kind of headquarters. And up here, of course, you have Antioch. This is the map of Paul's first missionary journey. So you can kind of see where he went all up in here. And he turned around and came back. And then they traced it in the second one. And way over here into the Gentile area on the third one. But this is where he's writing to. He's writing to the Jews in Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia, Pontus, and Asia. Right in here, this area is where he's writing to the churches that are there. Of course, here we have the uh, seven churches that John wrote his letters to that make up chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. But just to give you an idea of what he's doing, he's writing letters to people in that area. And here's how he calls them. He says, elect. Oh, man, Peter, looks like you got it here. We're uh, jumping right into the deep end of the theological pool. You are elect. You are chosen by God. You are placed in his hand by his choosing of you first. And he's, you're placed there by the foreknowledge of God the Father. I want you to notice that this word is prognosis. You know, um, we have gnosis, which means experiential knowledge. It means like love and affection. When Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived, that word know there or knew is gnosis, or it is in the Septuagint in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We have epigenosis, of course, which means to know cognitively. This, of course, is prognosis, or prognosis which means foreknowledge. And so it's God placed his favor on them before they placed their faith in him. It's the book of Ephesians chapter 1 just laid out for us. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And once you come to a saving knowledge that God is, will fulfill in you, what are you supposed to do? Well, I live in sanctification. Not of God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in sanctification of the Spirit. Because it's the Spirit that allows me to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And when I walk according to the Spirit and I'm, I've got this life of sanctification, I find myself obedient and using Old Testament imagery here and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, which to a Jew talks about what happened in the temple or the tabernacle when a covenant was made or a sacrifice was made or an agreement was made between God and man. And then he begins what we're going to talk about today. And it is this incredible picture of our salvation, this blessed hope, this thing that God has given us and granted us because of his good pleasure. Again, we're back Ephesians chapter 1, not because of works, not because of anything that we do. Now that brings us back to Romans chapter 9, that uh, he blessed us with salvation, which comes with it some incredible benefits that are ours now, in addition to the great benefit that we focus on that happens when we die. So here's what he said. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who... Now, again, we're talking about the one that's being blessed here. It's not us. Who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again. 
the second time to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In addition to an inheritance described as incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, then about us who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I've shared this with you forever, that if you really want to uh, help in your Bible study, what you do is you start with a passage like this, and you simply ask very simple questions. The who, what, where, how, to what degree um, questions. And you just put them in parentheses so that you'll find that when you ask the question, that it seems like God gives you the answer in the very next word or phrase. So that's what we'll do here. Blessed be who? Well, it's not us we're talking about being blessed. It's not even Jesus right now. It's blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is blessing God the Father. Something Christ did, and we, of course, are the beneficiaries of that. So therefore, we're blessing God because what Christ did for us. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the reason for this? our blessings, what is the reason why we're praising him for this, who according to his abundant mercy, not our actions, not what we deserve, not how what we were born with, not our last name or our pedigree or the fact that we're Americans or Christians or capitalists or Jews or something of that. No, no, no. It's according to his abundant mercy. What has he done for us? He has begotten us again. Again, first time we were begotten was our physical life. The second time he begotten us is when we were not born the first time was what Jesus talked about in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus when we were born again. And that is not a dead hope, but a living hope. He begotten us or born, had us born again to this incredible hope, and we're going to define that word in a minute, and what brought that blessing in our life was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was something he did. To be resurrected, he must have died. He must have suffered. He must have paid the penalty for our sins, but it was through the resurrection now we have this hope, not of just life eternal, but far more than that. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for what reason? According to what his great mercy has begotten us, not the first time, but again, addition to the first time, to a living hope, and how did we receive that hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is there anything else that comes with this living hope? Yes, to an inheritance. We not only are born again, but now he brings this whole nother topic in here and says that we have an inheritance. And then he begins to describe that inheritance. And it's unlike any inheritance you and I can ever receive on earth. It is incorruptible. If it's made of gold or precious metals, they don't rust. It is undefiled and it does not fade away. It does not diminish in value over time. It is permanent. It never changes. And not only that, but that inheritance we have is reserved in heaven for us. 
And who are we? And how do we know we're going to receive it? And so he finishes this off by giving some descriptive terms about us. Who, this is implied you, are kept. Interesting word we're going to look at in just a second. By my own wits, by my own ability to live a righteous life, by trying really hard but failing and just trying again. No, I am kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed, the fullness of it, in the last time, in the later, in the latter days, when we meet him face to face. As uh, we have talked about over the years, you want to find out what it says, and then once you find out what the verse says, by looking up some words, then you can figure out what exactly it means. So let's deal with the said part first. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, got that, according to his abundant, or some translations say great mercy, he has begotten us again. In other words, he orchestrated our salvation. We're now born again. We've experienced regeneration. We have been changed from the inside out. This week, I'm going to be sending you an article talking about saving and non-saving faith. You know, one of the greatest deceptions that is going on right now uh, in the church is people who think they're saved, but they're not. They have conversion. Uh, I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I asked Jesus to come into my life, and I kind of felt better, but there was no regeneration that took place. Conversion, I mean, you can convert to Islam. You can convert to, to some sort of philosophy. I can believe and trust and make a verbal allegiance to it, but it's only when regeneration takes place, when the nature is changed, that true salvation takes place. And here, Christ has begotten, God has begotten us again to experience this regeneration. And when he does, we experience this living hope. And the word living here means as opposed to dead. Hope, of course, is a desire for something good with, his, with an expectation to receive it. And we receive that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Which brings us to the question, okay, uh, why is it always about the resurrection? I mean, there's a lot more in Christ. Matter of fact, if you take a survey of a lot of pastors today, they will tell you that it's not the resurrection, which is the big deal about Jesus. It's how he lived his life on earth. It's his sinless perfection. It's his adherence to the personal needs of people. It's his inclusivity, which allows everybody to come to him, even those people who don't even know him. It's making Christ in our own image. But here we find out that all these blessings that come to us come because of the resurrection of Christ, just the resurrection of Christ. So if that's true then there has to be some other scriptures that point that out. One of my favorite, of course, one of my favorite stories in all scripture, and I think it's my favorite because it shows more of Jesus' personality, is in John chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, Lazarus, his friend, is sick. Uh, Mary and Martha do what they should have done. They send for Jesus. Jesus realizes, they gets the message that Lazarus is sick and waits a couple days until he dies. And not only dies, but he waits until he's in the tomb for four days. And if you understand the Jewish view of when the spirit leaves the body, you'll understand why uh, he waited uh, four days so that everybody around would know for certain that Lazarus was dead. And as Jesus shows up, we have Mary and Martha who are struggling with the fact, why weren't you here? 
we called and we expected you to come and you didn't come. And then we find out maybe later you actually waited. So we suffered this anguish for four days. Why weren't you here? Same question both of them presented. And Jesus, in response to that, he said something. And then, of course, Martha had to respond also. So here's what Jesus said to the question, why weren't you here to remove this tragedy of my brother dying? And he says this, I am, me, personally. I am the resurrection and the life. I am one, this is before he actually raised from the dead. He was getting ready to raise Lazarus to bring him back to physical life. I am the resurrection and the life. I don't know what that means. Can you explain that to me a little bit, Jesus? Sure. He who believes in me, that's faith, not works. He who believes in me, though he may die physically like Lazarus, he shall live. He shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die like when I return. That's the truth. The question is, do you believe this? Do you trust me? Do you understand the nature of who I am? Do you believe what I just told you? And her response is, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who came into the world. And so then Jesus goes to the tomb, he weeps, and again, we've talked about this, I personally believed it was because Lazarus had been in heaven for four days, and now we had to drag him out of heaven, put him back into a body in the middle of a tomb just to die again. And the fact of him taking him from where he was and putting him back on earth for who knows how long, literally broke Christ's heart. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And all of a sudden, Lazarus was now raised from the dead. And if you'll follow it in Scripture, his name was changed from that point on. Every time he's mentioned in Scripture, he's no longer Lazarus, but he's Lazarus and an attribute attached to him, whom was raised from the dead. And they wanted to kill him as bad as they wanted to kill Christ. Because there's two types of resurrections here at the tomb. There's a spiritual resurrection that Jesus did that we will do, and then it was a physical resurrection that took place in the tomb. Those of us that are carnal-minded would say, hey, that's enough, just the physical resurrection, to have more years on earth. And Jesus says, no, no, it's, it's more than that. Physical life means nothing. It's what I provided for you through my resurrection that means everything. And Paul brings that up in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Because as Peter says, everything hinges on the resurrection, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, maybe he'll raise me from the dead so I can live another 15 years before I die, we are of all men most pitiful. Because it's not this life that matters, it's eternity with him. But with his resurrection comes so much more. And since Christ is raised from the dead, our question is, what does that mean for us? I mean, how, how do I, I, I know my sins are forgiven, and I know I'm going to go to heaven, and I know if I believe he raised from the dead, that's part of my salvation. I got that. But how does that affect us right now in every one of our struggles, in our depression, in our fear, in our you know, questions that we have, or maybe unanswered prayers. How does it affect us now? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant great mercy 
has begotten us again, has regenerated us and made us new creatures in Christ to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Wow, so it's not, it's not just being raised from the dead, but since we are raised from the dead and since Christ was raised from the dead and since the Bible talks about us being in Christ, that we get an inheritance? I, I thought it would be good enough if we just got into heaven, maybe in this little lean-to in the back, and, you know, I'm just so thankful I'm just here. But no, it's like not only are we granted bold access to the Father, to the blood of Christ, but we get an inheritance. And an inheritance implies sonship. An inheritance implies a family relationship. An inheritance means that the father has taken what he has and the father has shared it with his children, with those people who are his, that are part of his family. And then I started looking at, at all the passages in Scripture that talked about being part of the family of God or that were sons of God. And, and I had about eight or nine of these on the slide. So I cut them down to just two. John chapter 1. Ah, love this passage. How do I become a son of God? How do I receive, since I'm a son, now an inheritance? How does, how does that happen? Is it by living a perfect Christian life? Is it by, you know, praying an hour a day or two hours a day? Is it by going on a mission field every summer that we have? Is it like tithing 50% of my income? All those things are great, but that's not how you become a son. I mean, you may... You may do those things as a son, but that's not how you become a son. You become a son by faith, by trust, by obedience. But as many as received him, to them, not to everybody else, but to just those who received him, he gave the right or privilege or blessing to be children of God. What do I have to do to be a child of God? Do I have to go through this massive adoption process? Do I have to prove myself worthy? Do I have to beg and beg and beg, please, 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 you know, let me be? A no, he's done all that already. He's chosen us and redeemed us and called us and justified us and gave us the spirit so that we know we belong to him because we have God himself, him in the person of the Holy Spirit living in us. But as many as received him, to them he gave rights to become children of God. How? What did we have to do? It's really simple. You believed in his name. You trusted him for who he is. And again, this is not just a cognitive belief. It's a belief that leads to true salvation. It's a belief that means you have to, you have to act on that belief. Again, the greatest example I had ever heard, and I wrote about it in uh, the last chapter of Leaving Laodicea was the great Blondin. You remember the story? You know, back uh, before the turn of the century, um, he was a tightrope walker, and he was the one that uh, walked across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. If you've been to Niagara Falls, only an idiot would do that. I mean, it's, it's frightening. And he'd start on the Canadian side, and he would walk over, and people cheer on both sides. And he'd walk over, and then he would take a wheelbarrow and walk it over. Then he put a, you know, 100 pounds of of grain in a wheelbarrow and walk it over. One time he actually walked over with a stove on his back and sat down right on the tightrope, 
you know, right in the center of Niagara Falls and cooked an omelet and ate it, did all these crazy things. And after he took this wheelbarrow over, he came back. He said, uh, he said do, you think I could, do you think I could take a man in this wheelbarrow and walk across it? And the crowds go, yes, we know you can. We, we have faith in you to do that. He goes, who wants to get in? Not one person did. That's the difference between saving and non-saving faith. Yes, I believe you can, Jesus. I just refuse to trust my life with you. The lady who decided to get in happens to be his mother. You know, she trusted him explicitly. He walked back over and simply came back. That's what we're talking about here. Those who believe in his name and will get in the wheelbarrow, that will surrender their life to him, that he will become all in all. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born, again, not of blood, it's not of physical blood, not of the will of the flesh, not something that you want to do or the will of man, but they are born regenerated of God, by God. If you're truly saved, this happened to you. Romans 8, 14 um, through 17, talk about this Holy Spirit that confirms your salvation in you. I love this. It says, for as many as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. No Holy Spirit, no salvation. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but what did you receive? You received the spirit of adoption. I'm alienated from the family of God. He adopts me into his home. By now I can cry out, Abba, Father. I can cry out, Daddy, Papa, Father. It's a term of intimacy and a term of formality. And it's the spirit in me that confirms that. All right, but how do I know? How do I know for certain that I'm a child of his? And what does that even mean? Well, you continue. I know because the spirit tells me. The spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that I am children of God. And then it gets better. If not only a child, then I'm also an heir. That means I have an inheritance. That means that, that I'm not just this no-name kid that has to live in the woods, but I'm an heir of Christ. And, and how much? I'm an heir of God, and I'm a joint heir with Christ, which I have a hard time even getting my brain around, being a joint heir with the Son of God. If or sense or because it means, indeed, we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. That's glorified together as other heirs, or it's glorified together, me and Christ, you and Christ. It's two ways to interpret that. Both ways are fantastic. You can look at other places in Scripture. That's just a couple of them. I would suggest you really look at the First John 3 passage, when you get home, which drives that point home about you being a son of God and an heir of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. And then, of course, that inheritance is described as incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved for us in heaven. I like the fact it doesn't say us. It says you. Reserved for you. Make it personal. It's reserved for me. Not just us collectively, but you individually. Because Christ died for you. 
Collectively, he died for us, but this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. Now, here's where I struggle. I, and I always have. Um, I know what my heart is like. I know what I struggle with. I know the depth of the sins I committed before I knew Christ. I know the sins that I committed after I've known Christ, when I freely chose to do what is wrong. I know that uh, I believe these truths for other people, but sometimes I struggle with these truths being true for me. And so these questions always pop in my head. Lord, what if my sins are too great? I mean, I kind of superimpose on God incorrectly human characteristics, like what I would do, and I'd just be fed up with me. You know what I mean? I'd have show grace and mercy to everybody else, but I'd just, oh, you again? All that kind of stuff. And so, so what if I fail to live up to his standards? I mean, his standards are holiness and righteousness and perfection. He died for my sins. But what if I'm like Lazarus standing outside the, the tomb covered with filthy grave clothes and Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And I say, no, I like the smell of death. Let me just live the rest of my life with these putrefied garments on. What if I fail to live up to his standards? What if I embarrass him? What if I shame him? What if I'm not worthy of the trust he's put in me, like I think I am? Will he disinherit me because of my belief? Would he cut me out of the will? Would he be done with me? What if I can't live up to my preconceived notion of what this Christian life is all about? Because what he says is we're to be perfect, as his heavenly Father's perfect, and I ain't. You may be, but I'm not. What happens then? Lord, what's some encouragement for me? It's last verse we're going to look at. 1 Peter 1, 5. Because then he describes us who are recipients of this great salvation and recipients of this living hope and this inheritance that's undefiled, that's perfect, that never passes away. And the first thing he says about me and you is that we are kept. I'm not keeping myself, I'm being kept by someone else. Kept means to be guarded, to watch over, to keep with a military guard, to preserve from harm. It's like there are soldiers around me, or angels around me, who are keeping me, reserving me for this inheritance that God has bestowed upon me because I received his son as my Lord, as imperfect as I am, and his spirit lives in me as unclean as this vessel may be, that I am kept. Well, what does that mean, Lord, that, that I'm, I'm kept as long as I do what is right? I, I'm kept, I'm holding on to you. No, you're kept by the power of God. You're not kept by the power of Steve, which fails all the time. You are kept by the power of God, the dudamas, achieving, explosive, miracle-working power of God. This is not authority. It's not exhaustia. It's dudamas. That it is the power of God that is holding on to me. And I've appropriated that into my life through faith, through trust. That's what God says. It's what I believe to my salvation, which means a state of being delivered or rescued from harm. And I know that on this side of my death, I see Christ dimly, 
But at some point in time, like looking in a mirror dimly, but at some point in time, it talks about in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, I will see him face to face, and I will see him as he is. And if you will read those sanctification verses in Scripture, you will find it talks about us becoming or being like him. With all our failures, God has bestowed upon us sonship and inheritance, and he's going to make sure that we receive it. We were kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. And when will that fullness of my salvation and your salvation become real to us? When will we truly understand face-to-face right now what we're trusting by faith? It's when we see him at the end, ready or completely prepared to be revealed in the last time when our inheritance to him will be revealed in full. Our inheritance in him, not just in the future, but living like his son here on earth. Now that was an introduction. Here's the part that I really want you to get. When it comes to the depth of your salvation, your salvation is not something that you did and because of that you're okay when you die. It is something that when you experienced him, there's like three tenses to this. There's a past tense of your salvation, there's a present tense to your salvation, and there's a future tense to your salvation. The penalty of sin is dealt with the past tense, the power of sin in your life is dealt with in the present tense, and the presence of sin, will there be no sin around you at all, is dealt with in the future tense. And the scripture talks about one is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification basically delivers you from the penalty of sin. You're justified in God's sight. You prayed, your sins were forgiven. God sees you, and he sees you as if you had never sinned. You've been justified, pardoned, and redeemed for everything you've done, past, present, and future. There's no longer any penalty that you'll pay for your sins because Christ paid that penalty for you. That's God's work. Well, what about now? How do I live and not fall prey to the power of sin in our culture, the power of sin in my flesh, the the power of the enemy right now? That's called sanctification, which is the most important word for us living the Christian life now. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. He didn't have to. But he did, because now that the Holy Spirit lives within us, we're never alone. We take God with us everywhere we go, and he gives us the power of the Godhead living in us to be able to live righteously, just like he says. That's why you'll find all the sanctification verses are you verses, are implied. You take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He ain't going to do that for you. He gave you the Spirit. You do that. You don't worry about anything. You pray without ceasing. You, 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 you. And he gets glory and honor when you freely choose, empowered by his spirit, to live righteously. Then the day will come when we die, when Christ redeems us and we have these resurrected bodies and we're in his presence, and then sin is gone. Sin is banished. There is no sin. There's no temptation. You'll you'll be freed from the presence of sin. And salvation, this living hope, encompasses all three of these. 
We got no problem with justification because I know my sins are forgiven. Got no problem with glorification because I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But most Christians struggle with sanctification. They think God is powerful enough to justify us, plus or minus nothing, and there's nothing we can do to have our sins unforgiven from him. Got that. And he thinks that we think that when we die, God's powerful enough and loves us enough that we'll have these glorified bodies and heaven will be incredible and we'll be glorified with him. We have that. But somehow we think when it comes to sanctification, it's all on us. That he leaves us here to flounder. He leaves us here to mess up. That the same sovereign God who lives in us that justified our sins and promises glorification is somehow not big enough are strong enough to help us live the victorious life in him. And I'm telling you, that is not true. It's a terrible thing to say about God. This is supposed to be an abundant life in Christ, and we're supposed to handle it by our own wits? Justification, the penalty of sins. Let me just hit you these quick. You know these passages. Therefore, having been justified by faith, faith in what? Faith in Christ and his life and atoning sacrifice, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's no longer angry with us because of our sins. And then if you want to know what this means as justification, it's the penalty of your sins. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins, which is justification according to the riches of his grace and not our own efforts. When it comes to sanctification, I want you to watch this really carefully. Uh, there's so many verses I can use, and this is just a very familiar one, 1 John 1.9. And in 1 John 1.9, we're going to look at justification and sanctification. It's two promises in the same verse. We have a tendency of only believing the first, but both of them are just as valid. Justification, or our action, if we confess our sins that he is faithful and just, that he's going to do something. He's going to justify us. If I confess my sins, he forgives my sins, so therefore I'm in a right standing with him. My sins are, are, are forgiven and redeemed. He will forgive our sins, but he doesn't leave us hanging. He will also, sanctification, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Same power, same God, same promise that we hold on to justification, we should just as tightly hold on to sanctification. There's other verses you can look at regarding God's incredible power. And then, of course, there's glorification. And for that, we just go back to the the schemata of salvation. You know, when we get saved at justification, happened to me when I was 28 years old, all of a sudden Christ came into my life, I knew my sins were forgiven, and all I did was look at from where I'm at forward. Well, here I am. I'm now saved. I got saved on this day. You write it down in your Bible. You tell your friends about it. Just go get baptized. And from this point forward, you know, I'm, I'm looking for heaven. I'm looking for him. I'm looking to live righteously. I want to grow in my faith and, and all that. And, and then we stop once we mature a little bit and we look back and we go, wow, my salvation really didn't begin with me saying a sinner's prayer. My salvation actually began eons ago. And it's confirmed here in Romans chapter 8. For whom he foreknew, these he also predestined, predetermined their outcome to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, who he predestined, these he also called, who he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, 
these he also glorified. There's a couple things that are missing here, like sanctification. Do you realize every one of these that Paul lays out in Romans chapter 8 are things God does? And the things that we do, sanctification, aren't included here. When you come to a full understanding of salvation, that it includes the same power that forgave your sins and the same power that will glorify you for all eternity, that that also applies to your sanctification with him. The early church understood this. There have been pockets of revivals that took place over the last 2,000 years that understood this. The Philadelphia church truly understood this, that they call it full salvation, that I'm not only saved from the penalty of my sins, but I'm also saved from the power of sin in my life. And so the same faith and confidence I have that Christ has redeemed me, I can also have that Christ has empowered me and will keep me in him. I'm not going to be able to elaborate on this uh, today for time's sake, but I want you to look at this final benediction in Jude. Jude deals with some really strange things. Talks about apostasy in a church and hidden reefs and you know, the sin of the Nephilim and Genesis 6 and all that kind of crazy stuff. But at the end, he sums it all together. And it's one of the most encouraging verses for me when it comes to knowing that even in my sin and my carnality, that Christ will keep me. And here's what he says. Now to him who is able, powerful enough to keep me from stumbling. Wow. Wow, so it's not like I can lose my sonship. It's not like that I can, you know, him look at me and say, man, you just, you just, just get out of here. It's not like that at all. That God is strong enough and powerful enough to keep me from stumbling. I know, well, I didn't stumble to the very end, but I'm, I'm pretty dirty and beat. No, no, no. And present us faultless, faultless. Where? Before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The resplendent holiness and glory of Christ, that we are presented to him faultless, and he's kept, which is justification. But he got us there by keeping us from stumbling, which is sanctification to the greatest degree that when we're standing there in front of all his glory, he sees us with exceeding joy. And then he goes on to praise this amazing God who does this. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, which means us today. Amen. If you want to know more about this, um, you can read about the higher Christian life. That's just a phrase that man has placed on what Jesus called the abundant Christian life, where it talks about full salvation. It talks about you being able to live a life of victory rather than defeat in your own sin. Um, it's the same enemy out there, and it's the same Christ out there, and it's the same Holy Spirit in you. But what it teaches you to do is appropriate the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not like you get more of the Holy Spirit than you already have, but 
You know, if you're the son of the richest man on the world, the richest man in the world, and yet you choose to live like a pauper, you know, it doesn't change the reality that you're not appropriating yourself to all the benefits that come from sonship. And you're choosing to live less than what he has ordained for you. Make sense? So I want to encourage you to, to look at these passages, understand who God is, understand this blessing that you have, and realize that you're not hung out to dry. That the same God who foreknew you, and by the way, if you'll read that passage of Romans 8, that you were predestined and foreknown in order to be transformed and created into the image of Christ, the image of him, laying yourself down as a living sacrifice in Romans 12, having your mind conformed to him and not this world, takes you so many steps closer to the fullness of what God has planned for you. And it's not just for the super spiritual, it's for every single one of us. And I can't think of a better time to do that than right now as we see the world getting darker. Amen? Now be encouraged with this and let me pray.